Philippians 2. We're going to um, pick up where we left off last week, and I'll read to you from verse 5. Remembering, of course, that Paul said to them, complete my joy by having this unity, this same mind, same love, killing pride, walking in humility. And now he points us to Jesus in this passage, which I think it feels like holy ground. When you're uh, there's a certain passage in Scripture, and you walk through them, you feel like you have to slow down. Um, I was, there was a thing in the news this week, apparently in China, among some of the cultural heritage sites, they've put little tiny speed bumps on the ground to make people walk more slowly, so they have to appreciate them rather than rush past, which um, I think you just spend more time figuring out how not to trip up. But we need to walk a little bit more slowly when we're going through Philippians 2, um, and just just marinate in what it says about Jesus here, our amazing Savior. He's so matchless, isn't he? He's so unique, so extraordinary. So I want to read to you from verse 5. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he's speaking here of Christ's existence before he became a baby. As a son of God in eternity, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think a lot of us were challenged last week when we just started to open up the themes of pride and humility because the few things it seems to me that are more countercultural these days than addressing this whole area. And as we continue on this theme, I think it's never been more challenging or countercultural to do so. I just wanted to set this up with a little bit of an illustration. On the 26th of September, 1960, a lot, historians recognize that the world actually changed. It's very rare. It's not so common in history that you can pin it down to one moment or one date when a significant, significant cultural changes happen, especially when it doesn't involve wars and these kinds of things, but just cultural shifts. And here's what one person in Time magazine said about um, this day. It said, it's one of those unusual points on the timeline of history where you can say things changed very dramatically, in this case, in a single night. Now, what happened that night? I'll tell you. It was the TV debate that took place between uh, Richard Nixon and J.F. Kennedy, who were both running for president in the United States. And the thing that was weird about this debate was that it, it was the first time a TV debate had taken place um, in a presidential, presidential uh, campaign. And uh, on the night, coming into the night, J.F. Kennedy was this... He was too young to be president, and he was Catholic as well. So he had a couple of marks against his name that would mean that he, he wasn't likely to do well against Nixon, who was well-known, a statesman, 
well-respected, well-regarded, the favorite coming into this debate. And the debate was broadcast both on television and on the radio. But you see, those people who listened to the debate on the radio said that Nixon won. They were won by his arguments. They were won by his persuasion and the, the, uh, the substance of what he was saying. But people who, listened, who watched the debate on the television said that Jeff Kennedy won. Because coming into that night, Kennedy looked, he looked suave, he looked confident, he looked relaxed. Um, he'd been prepping all day, and then he'd had a nap, and he's lying there with all the note cards over him. He's so chilled. Um, I couldn't sleep before going on TV, but this guy was relaxed, and he, he walked into this debate with that kind of air of, of being in control. And Nixon, on the other hand, had been recently recovered from a sickness. He looked sweaty. He looked a little bit pale. And so although what the things he was saying was right, people were not convinced by his image. And so because so many millions of people, something like 78 million people, had watched the debate on TV, JF Kennedy was said to have won that night. And it marked a real shift in culture in a couple of ways, really in moving the culture from being less based around words and more around images. And you can see how this trend has even taken place in a microcosm in our, um, in our brief experience of the internet, how it was all blogs initially, and now it's all moved to photographs, hasn't it? And there's always that shift away from words to images, but that, that day marked one of those moments in history. But also in elevating image, the brand above substance. The substance, people said, Nixon won that night. But the brand, the projected image of Kennedy meant that he won on that night. Now, this means that if that was true in 1960, we're now, what, 57 years on from there. And that trend has only intensified and increased to the point where everyone now has a personal brand, don't they? They have a way of projecting who they are. And ideally, it's confident. Ideally, it's good-looking. Ideally, it's a little bit deceitful because it doesn't necessarily represent who you are on the inside. But it's an image that's broadcast via images to say who you are, and it's all about personal elevation. And sadly, this has infiltrated to a huge extent even the church. I, um, I think that every sphere of life that we're in can become a platform for elevating the, the glory of man and sucking in the praise and adoration of other people. And church is no exception to that. If you're new to church, this might strike you as slightly weird. But those of us who know and been involved in churches for years know that there's always opportunity in any context um, for, for glory hunting. And we've seen this particularly over the 1990s. There was this boom in, in the Christian worship music industry. Um, it's amazing, isn't it, to those people who don't, have never listened to Christian music, that there's a whole industry based around Christian music. <laughs> and one of the great ironies of it is that you think, well, what is worship? What are we doing just now? We're worshiping Jesus, right? And we're singing songs to him. We're wanting to, by faith, come into the very throne room and adore him. And yet, with the whole industry around worship, we had both the benefits and the curse. The benefits were that suddenly we had all these new songs and these wonderful sounds and, and emotive music and wonderful ways to help us to engage with God through sung worship. And the Christian faith is unique in, having, uh, in releasing creativity in this kind of way, particularly through music. 
but the, the, the curse of it, the downside of it, was suddenly you had the elevation of these demigods, the worship leaders, who released their albums with their own um, sort of brooding pictures on the front as they posed to the camera. And they're always ridiculously good looking. I mean, like, seriously, ri- really, really ridiculously good looking. You think, why? We, we need more ugly worship leaders in, in the Christian church. Any of you volunteer, you say, I'm ugly enough, please come forward and, you know. We don't want to be going with the culture, we want to be going against it, that's what the church is all about. But suddenly this thing happened, and then we started to see churches exploding in growth, and as wonderful as it is to see God doing mighty works through churches that are seeing many people come to faith, or um, doing extraordinary works around the world, suddenly the platform grows, and the pastors of those churches become minor Christian celebrities, Sometimes major celebrities, even in the wider culture, watched by millions of people on TV, and they've got the right suits, and they've got the, um, the right hair, they've got the right uh, tan, and the right teeth, and they've got the right winning personality, so that they, they attract many, many followers all around the world, and you're suddenly starting to think, I know it's easy to jump to wrong conclusions, it's easy to be judgmental, that's one of my particularly uh, weakness in my character, but you know we all start to think, well, whether, whether, is this really about Jesus or is this about you at some point? And one thing I can guarantee you is that I'll never be that guy because I'm too grumpy and I don't tan. So, <laughs> but I think if we're, if, we're, if we're serious, when we come to a passage like this, we've got to acknowledge that maybe Jesus finds it disgusting when he looks at his church and he sees people using church as an opportunity for glory. Now, that may not be true of you, but this passage challenges us in our glory hunting, in every part of life, a hunger for adoration, a hunger for praise, and for the adoring compliments and love of people around us. I also think, though, that because the church has grown more and more gauche and ugly in this regard, This also gives us a unique opportunity, doesn't it? At this point in history, as the culture has moved in that direction too, for the church of Jesus Christ, as it seeks to come back to God, to be more and more different from the world around it. God wants a people who put him at the center of everything. There's a famous verse in Isaiah 42 where God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Even if that's guys with their carved bodies from the gym leading worship on Sundays. (laughs) It's there in the first and second commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment, that you shall not make for yourself an idol and worship it. The reason why is that God is a jealous God and if you could sum up his, the center of his burning desire is his jealousy for his own glory. That the world should see who he is and know who he is and worship and praise him. And of course, that is the very point at which man becomes sinful, is when we no longer worship God for who he is. But then that means there's an opportunity for a church that as the world gets more and more ridiculous and shallow and more likely to worship image over substance and images over words. The church is meant to be something different. 
So here's the question we need to ask. How do we go this different way? How do we walk this different way that, that embodies humility? That is all about the glory of Jesus in your life. And in us as a body, as a church, as a community. It's not that this passage is calling us to, you know, when he says, have this mind, verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's not calling us to, to suddenly all becoming like clones, like some religious cults, where everybody has to look the same, sound the same, speak the same. Because the Christian gospel always brings flourishing of humanity, diversity, and extraordinary release of gifts. But to have the mind of Christ must somehow marry humility with flourishing. And neither does it mean that we're called to some kind of dullness and morbidity, because I know a lot of the language in here is of Christ going low, and we're called to go low, but it doesn't mean that as a church or as Christians, we're called to a kind of morbidity in our Christian faith, of being grave and sullen and miserable people who go around with their heads hung low. I hope you understood from last week that that's a bad misunderstanding of what humility is. Because what we've experienced in knowing Jesus is that the gospel brings about an incredible sense of adventure, and challenge. You know, the only reason you could ever be bored or grave or miserable in the Christian life is because you haven't fully understood the adventure that Christ has called you onto. So we need to wrestle with what does he mean when he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want to show you how, just running, walking through these verses, there are these four sequential steps that Paul shows us that Jesus took that we are meant to mirror by our own discipleship to the master. Here's the first. You've got to let go of glory. It's there in the next verse, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You've got to let go of glory. Now, this is the negative. This is where we've got to begin with a letting go. Doesn't the Christian life always begin with a letting go, with a repentance, with a turning away? That's how it starts here. So we just need to quickly understand the theology of what he's talking about. The Lord Jesus, before he became Jesus the incarnate man, was the Son at the Father's right hand for all eternity. That's why it says in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we had the Father and the Son face to face through all eternity. Jesus mentions it in John 17. He says, Father, glorify me now in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's like Jesus had this knowledge, this memory of a glory that he enjoyed before he became man. But what does he do here in Philippians 2? He says, though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This word grasped is, is the key word here. It means, it means sort of to have this acquisitiveness, to be snatched at something, to grab at something, to want it. When we, we were on holiday a couple of weeks ago with the wider family, and the two little ne- uh, my daughter and, and my niece, Isla and Lena, they, they get along really well until they both want the same thing. And so one of them will be playing with the little push chair, the other one comes along, they grab it, and these two are equally stubborn little girls. And they'll start screaming, share! And the other one says, no! That is a picture, isn't it, of what basically is the human sin, the root of our hearts. We are basically people who are always snatching. But what is it that we're snatching? We're snatching glory. 
traced the, the, the story of the ugliness of sin through the early chapters of the Bible in Genesis. And what do you see? You see Adam and Eve, what do they do? They snatch. They snatch at an apple. And it's, at its root, it's glory hunger, to want to be like God. A few pages later, Cain and Abel, the first murder, two brothers. Why does Cain snatch and grab and murder his brother? It's because he wants the approval that Abel had received from God. He was glory hunting. A few pages later, Babel, mankind start building a tower, which they say we're going to build it all the way up to heaven. What are they doing? They're snatching at glory, and so God thwarts their plans. Sometime later, two brothers are born, twin brothers. And as they're being born, the older one's almost out. And then the little brother grabs his ankle, holds on to him, like, I wanted to be first. I don't know if this actually happens in twin births. Maybe one of the midwives can enlighten me later. But it's a picture of what would be the case of them later on in life. There would be this rivalry, this glory hunting, this desire, this snatching for power. And then Joseph. Do you remember Joseph and his technicolor dream coat? Why is Joseph sold into slavery? Because the brothers are jealous and they want to snatch the glory from him, which involves snatching his cloak and then throwing him into a well and then selling him into slavery. The story of the human heart and of our sin is about glory, desire for glory, and this grasping acquisitiveness to want what to want it, to desire it, to make it our own. So the first step always in wanting to be like Jesus must be this letting go, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be snatched at. It's a prerequisite, friends, for ever becoming a Christian in the first place. The first step into the Christian life is giving up the glory hunt, saying, I can't do this, Lord. I can't build a righteousness that's my own. I can't be the good person that you want me to be, and I need to lay down my efforts and surrender to Jesus and his saving work for me on the cross. It's the first thing. But friends, don't make the mistake to think that that isn't how the Christian life is going to play out from here on. Every day of your Christian life At its root, every fight you have with sin and every ugly desire is at root this snatching for glory, this proudful desire to be a mini-God. I want you to ask yourself, what would it look like if you renounced every effort in your life to attain glory for yourself? It's a searching question, isn't it? A hard one to answer. Because I don't think there's any part of your life that wouldn't be touched by that decision. So that's the first thing he says. It's that letting go of glory. Then he moves on to the second. That you've got to take a low seat at the table. Here he goes on, and the next verse. He says that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, Jesus told a parable that relates to this whole idea. I want you to turn to Luke 14 because I want to read the whole thing. It's on page 1536. Luke 14, verse 7. It says this, Now he told a parable 
They're, they're at a dinner party. Jesus often told his, his stories, his parables over dinner. And he does so here. He says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So obviously, in an honor culture, we have a different culture these days. We, we're more aligned around righteousness and guilt, which is a more individualistic way of, of, uh, of thinking of right and wrong. Whereas in the Middle East, and certainly the, the further east you go, the more this is true, it's more of a collect, more, you find more collective culture based around honor and shame. So as this dinner party is taking place, Jesus is watching, just observing where people sit around the dinner table because it all has to do with their, their ranking. You know, like you have the cabinet um, in the UK government and where you sit, how close you sit to the prime minister is a symbol of your, your importance your, in that cabinet meeting. Well, here we are. There was no round tables. It was all a place of ranking. He says, he looked out, saw how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. You can feel the flush of embarrassment, can't you? That when you've laid down your coat, you've settled down, maybe you've had a drink from the cup that was there, and suddenly the, the, the host comes and says to you, come on, shuffle down please, there's someone more important than you here. How embarrassing. But he says, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I know that we don't necessarily have these kind of customs so much these days, except perhaps at weddings, right? We have the head table. The bride and groom sat there in all their splendor and glory. The last thing you do when you're just a regular punter at a wedding is go and plonk yourself next to the bride and sit at the head table. Embarrassment will follow. And Jesus wanted to paint this as a picture of the kind of how we need to be growing in godliness. It's a picture of life. If you elevate yourself, he says, you're going to be pulled down. But when you take a low place, you're going to be lifted up. Now Jesus, when he became man, he took the lowest place, the lowest seat at the table. It's partly to do with the circumstances of the kind of man that he became. We're told in Isaiah that he wasn't particularly good looking. It says he had no beauty or glory to attract us to him. Now, if you were the God of the universe and you're going to choose to become man, would you rather become a good looking man or an ugly man? It seems Jesus chose to, even the, the very flesh he was in was humble flesh. I love that. Look at the circumstances of his birth. He could have chosen, he could have, I think it, it would have worked for him to be born in the king's palace. I don't think there would have been any problem with that in terms of how salvation would have played out. But Jesus didn't. He chose to be born in a stable, and to be laid in a cattle trough where they're feeding from, and to be born into a very poor family with very few earthly possessions. I mean, people complain about poverty today in modern Britain, but it's nothing compared with a hand-to-mouth existence where there is no safety net, nothing to back you up. And that's the kind of family that Jesus was born into. And then it says he emptied himself. It doesn't mean that he shed 
his divinity, what it means is that this, word, this expression emptied himself means that he lived a life that was poured out towards others. Is that something that characterizes you at all? Do you live a life that's poured out? It meant that he rejected all the symbols of honor. He wasn't educated in, in the posh rabbinical school. He became a rabbi, but he was an unknown outsider as a rabbi. He didn't have all the scholarly learning. He didn't go to university. Those things did exist at the time, certainly in the religious world. He didn't have a good background. He didn't keep smart and witty company. The men he hung out with were buffoons a lot of the time. And he didn't have a slick strategy for taking over the world. Instead, he came along, this, this teacher with no training, one set of clothes that he wore all the time, traveling from place to place, often sleeping rough, with a rabble of disciples. You know when the rabbis chose the disciples, they used to find the most promising kids to come and be their followers and train them up from young. Jesus went down to the lake and found fishermen, probably guys who could barely read and write. Rough guys with rough hands and called them to be his disciples. I mean, he, he would have been the laughing stock when people looked at this upstart of a rabbi. Everything about him was taking the lowest seat at the table. He emptied himself, taking the form, it says, of a servant, pouring his life out towards others. What does it mean for you, friends? I think it means this. The humility is not just an attitude. It has to be an attitude. It has to be a state of heart. But it's also a posture, a position, an action. It's how you choose to conduct yourself to everyone else around you. Do you take the place of honor, expecting people to serve you, or do you take the low place, expecting to serve others? Humility is not just an attitude. It's, it's, it's a, this kind of question. Are you self or other-oriented in your day-to-day life? Are you always wrapped up in your own anxieties and concerns and ambitions? Or are you thinking about people around you? These are the real tests of a humble heart. Do you have time for people and their problems? Or do you find it an inconvenience when people tell you what's going on in their lives? Now, Jesus, this is, when it says that he took the form of a servant, it meant that when people came up to him and they had problems, he always had time for them. He always paused. To, to listen to the, the heart cry of the broken person. He, took, he emptied himself. Even when he was near the point of exhaustion, emptied himself, kept emptying. Do you do anything for other people? These are the kind of questions you need to ask, friends. Here's the third thing. We said you've got to let go of glory. You've got to take a low seat at the table. Thirdly, Paul tells us, you've got to go even lower. It says of Jesus in the next verse, and being found in human form. So there he is in his humility. Not rich, not good looking, not particularly much to admire. It says, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I think this is the hardest part. Because most of us can do kind of a symbol of humility. We can serve for a bit. But pretty soon we reach our limit, don't we? See if you don't recognize what I'm talking about. Maybe you serve for a while, but you get upset if you're taken for granted or nobody notices. You ever felt that? That resentment that people haven't noticed how much you're serving and pouring your life out for others? What is that? It's glory hunting. You serve, but you feel upset when people start treating you like a servant. That's ultimately the, the test of whether you have a servant or heart or not, is that how you react when people treat you like one. You know, it's one thing to go into a meeting at work and say, just off around, can I make everyone a cup of tea because I'm making tea? But then another thing when someone says, oh, could you just nip down to the shop and buy me a Coke? And you're like, what? I didn't offer that. Don't treat me like a servant. You suddenly feel this resentment growing. It's like, I'll do a symbol of service, but I don't really want to go too far. You take a low place, maybe, but do you feel resentful if it doesn't then lead to being elevated? Maybe you do something selfless, but you make sure others find out about it. Man, we have all kinds of ways our hearts deceive us, don't they? How easy it is to serve others, but then make sure somehow it turns for our own benefit and our own glory. Maybe you don't push forward, but you feel resentful when others are put ahead of you. When it says of Jesus here, that already being in human form, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It's saying Jesus wasn't content content just to serve us. He had to go even lower. He had to go to the the bottom of the pit, as it were, in in renouncing self and the desire for self-glory being humbled. Think about how he humbled himself. He humbled himself in his obedience to the Father's will. That's what it says here. Obedient to the point of death. I don't know how easy you find it to obey others. The reason it's hard is because we're proud. I don't like taking orders from people. It grates with my sense of autonomy and being in charge of my own life. It says Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He had to humble, he had to renounce his own desire, as it were. Think about the fact that when he went to his death, he was surrendering to evil men. The very same men who he was upholding by the word of his power. Because the whole of creation is held together by the Son of God, we're told in the Bible. All creation is held together in him. So even as he's surrendering his life to evil men... He is allowing and willing them to keep on breathing as they're breathing out insults and accusations against him. Without lifting a finger, without defending himself, without at at any point just willing that one of them just drop down dead in front of him. It was a public defeat when he'd been, he'd used pretty high language about the coming of the kingdom of God and yet here he was being shamed, you know, They put the sign above his head, the king of the Jews. It was a mockery. Because if the king of the Jews is being put on a cross, then clearly his kingdom isn't up to much. It was shame as being guilty, and it was shameful in the means of death. You know, for Christ to be 
put on the cross was to be treated as a common criminal. We know that the guys to his right and his left were common criminals. And he would have been stripped naked. It's horrible in any situation to be humiliated, much more so to be humiliated in nakedness. Beaten, pulverized his flesh. All of this, Paul tells us, was his self-abasement. His willingness to take the very lowest place. Friends, when Paul's pointing at Jesus, he's telling you, not only did Jesus do this for you, he did. When he went to the cross, he went there for you, but he did it to show you the way. That the Christian life is one of self-humiliation, humbling yourself from one step down to another step, down to another step. Here's the last thing he tells us. You've got to wait for God's therefore. You've got to wait for God's therefore. I want to read you just these last verses. Therefore, he says, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the strange and unexpected twist in God's way, in the way God works in the lives of those who are humble. Because what it tells us here is that there is something of the desire for glory which is not entirely wrong. We were created for glory. The book of Genesis tells us that. We were created, Adam and Eve were made to rule the planet as king and queen of this this world. And when Jesus offered promises through the Gospels all the way through, he used what what C.S. Lewis calls the unblushing promises of reward for those who walk with him and are faithful to him. In other words, he says to to, to his followers, I'm going to elevate you. You're going to have glory with me in eternity. So somewhere in the Christian heart, there's there's a hunger for glory which isn't wrong, which isn't sinful. Which is weird because we've been spending this whole time talking about how we need to abase ourselves and humiliate ourselves and humble ourselves before God and get rid of this self-glorifying motive. What is the difference here between the right kind of glory and the wrong kind of glory, the right pursuit, the wrong pursuit? I think the difference comes down to a couple of distinctions. The wrong type is grabbing. The right type is receiving. Think about Adam and Eve with the apple. What they did wrong was grabbing, but if they'd waited, they would have received. There's a difference between grabbing for yourself outside of God's will and receiving the good things that come from him within his will. Most of the sinful desires that you wrestle with on a day-to-day basis come down to that difference. Think about lust. What is it? It's grabbing. When in God's providence... You can receive gratification through his grace. Here's another way we can distinguish it. 
there's the difference between self-sufficiency and faith in God. The glory hunt, which is, which is at its root proud, relies on yourself to elevate yourself to places of, uh, to higher places. But the glory desire, which is right and which is part of the Christian life, understands that only God can elevate us, and he does it when we trust in him by faith. So here, we've got to come down to this basic difference. This is why I called this message the upside-down way. Because we're seeing at work here a kind of a spiritual law, actually, which works without variance in every situation, everywhere. This is how God works. It has two sides to it. The one side is that the Bible tells us that God is a vicious enemy of pride. I want to read to you 1 Peter 5. It says in verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You look through the pages of the Bible, and what you'll see again and again are the stories of the way God opposes proud people. One of the Herods in the book of Acts is basically receiving worship for his greatness, and the next thing he dies consumed by worms from the inside. It's disgusting. God opposes the proud. Nebuchadnezzar, basking in his glory and basically making himself out to be a god in the book of Daniel, the next thing God does is he takes away his sanity turns into like an animal-like man and puts him out in the field where he's going to go and eat grass like a, like a cow. You can trace story after story through the Bible. When God comes up against proud man, he always wins. And he always bends that man to humble him to the ground. Those people who refuse to be humbled are those who never experience the grace of God, his love, his fatherly transforming power. That's the story of every person who goes to the grave without acknowledging what it says here, that Jesus is Lord. The reason why you can't acknowledge it fundamentally is pride. Because to say Jesus is Lord is to surrender to him as the boss of your life. But God always bends the proud. The other side to it is that God is always a friend to the humble. In 1 Peter 5, he said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Here we have, again, this fundamental way of thinking in the Christian life that it's not wrong to desire the exaltation that comes from God, but it has to be the exaltation that comes from God. Isn't that the point of the parable that we read, the wedding feast? Take the low place because then you'll be lifted up. If you didn't have any desire at some, at some part of your heart to be lifted up, you wouldn't bother taking the low place. But Jesus is appealing to our desires and saying, yes, it's right that you have some desire to share with me in my glory, but you must receive it the right way. It reminded me of that film, um, the Indiana Jones film, The Last Crusade. 
Sorry for those of you who are too young to have enjoyed this stuff. You've truly missed out. Do you remember how it ends? And they find they're hunting for the Holy Grail, the cup that Jesus drank from when he, the Last Supper. And as they find the room where there's hundreds of cups laid out, and an old crusader who's been alive for hundreds of years being kept alive by the right cup, guarding the cups, the character called Donovan rushes in and finds the most beautiful cup in the room. I think it has like big rubies on it, doesn't it? It's like gold and lavish and ornate. And as he takes a drink, what follows next is the stuff to give you nightmares for the rest of your life. As his youth drains out of his face and he, he, he ages before our eyes and then dies and then rots into a skeleton, all in the space of about 10 seconds. It's a picture of glory hunting, exultation, the pride that he thinks he goes for the wealthiest, most glorious cup in the room. And it's not a true story, by the way. There isn't really, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> And then Indy looks around, and he finds the one cup which isn't metal, isn't beautiful, is simple, humble, and his dad's been wounded, and he's dying, and he takes the cup, fills it with water, and gives his dad a drink, and he immediately revives. And it's a picture of the way the Christian life works, that the way up is always down. Because God gives grace to the humble. The problem is, we can never really humble ourselves quite enough, can we? We can never really get rid of every instinct in our hearts for self-glorification, the pride that makes all our actions and motives sullied and mixed. I know that even when I do the most, the best things that I do, they're tainted. So what do we do? Well, thankfully, whilst this story is telling us about Jesus in Philippians 2 as an example for us to follow, it's always also telling us what he achieved on our behalf. He was abased to the lowest place so that you would never have to go as low as him. He was humbled to, the degree, to a degree that no person who follows him will ever have to, to experience. He was beaten instead of you. He was shamed so that you don't have to be shamed. He was stripped naked so that you never have to be put on display in your nakedness and exposed to everyone with all your sin on display and all of the ugliness of your heart revealed. Jesus was humbled so that you would not have to be humbled to the ground in this way. And then Paul tells us, Jesus was elevated to the highest place. And the meaning of what it, what it is to be a Christian is to say, Lord Jesus, as I worship you, I'm united with you, and I'm drawn into the glory that you're going to enjoy for all eternity. Jesus calls his believers, co-heirs with him, those who are experienced his, his ruling in eternity for all time. I, don't, I can't fully get my head around that. But it means that somehow when you attach yourself to this man, you're going to enjoy something of the overflow of his glory for all eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian. So friend, you need to quit your own pursuit of glory. If you're not a Christian, that's more urgent than ever. What I'm saying to you, 
To become a Christian is to humble yourself and say, I cannot save myself. But then it's to enjoy the grace that comes from God as he starts to elevate you and raise you up. How is God challenging you through this stuff? Don't we all feel cut to the heart when we think about the ways that we are proud and the need to humble ourselves before this mighty Savior? Can we stand and pray together? I want us to um, respond in worship and singing in a moment. But I think it would be good for us just to have a couple of moments in quiet and prayer, just in contemplation. And ask the Holy Spirit to put his finger on the ways in which you are seeking to glorify yourself. It could be inside the church. It's also very likely outside the church. And ask him to bring you to a point where you can lay it down before him and die to your own desires. You may have to kill it again because it will probably try and get up tomorrow. You have to stamp on it. And then probably the day after, and then you have to run it through. And then again. But you keep going. You keep killing this pride, this instinct to be something, to be someone, to glorify yourself. But ask the Holy Spirit, what is it in my heart that displeases you? And then ask him, how can I take a lower place? How can I live a life that's poured out in the way that Jesus lived towards me? Let's just pray for a couple of moments in the quiet.